All right, good morning, church. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to think a little bit more about the kingdom. As you saw there in the video, the name of the series is First Things First. Basic idea is that when Jesus uses priority language, Christians lean forward. When Jesus says, do this first, other stuff comes later. Or when Jesus says, this is more important than that, Christians pay attention to Jesus relativizing the importance of one thing and then asserting the primary importance of another thing. So we want to push to the edge of our seat when Jesus uses that kind of language. So we're going to look at passage after passage, Lord willing, in Matthew's gospel where Jesus says, hey, first, take the beam out of your own eye. Or first, be reconciled to your brother before you finish this offering. Or first, clean the inside of the cup and then you'll work on the outside. Or first, be a servant. Or, as we'll see here this morning, first, seek the kingdom and seek God's righteousness. And so I think it's almost intuitive for these first Sundays of the year 2019 for us to give ourselves to hearing Jesus say, do this first. It's the start of a year. Give yourself to this. And my prayer and hope is that by God's grace, we'll come to the end of this year, 2019, and we'll look back and we'll see evidence that Jesus' priorities were our priorities. That what he said to seek first, we sought it first all year. And so I'm hoping to start off on the right foot in that way. And I think a great place to start of these first statements in the Gospel of Matthew is this one right here. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 25. Our focus this morning is really going to be just on verse 33, but I'm going to read the broader context. And it begins with Jesus saying these words. Don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the fields grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So here's the challenge and here's the tension. Christians can be directionally challenged, right? That can be the story of our lives, which is both tragic for us as believers And it can also be a tragedy for the world around us because this world doesn't need another aimless Christian 
who's lost the sense of the clear, stated purpose of God for our lives and why we exist and why he's left us on the planet. And so he steps in these moments of clarity throughout his word and he says, this is what you're here for. This is what I want you to seek. Think about directions. So some of you have an amazing ability to know, I wish I had this, to know your orientation to true north at every moment, even sitting in this room, you know which direction is north. Go ahead and point. Okay. Some of you are pointing in different directions. So <laughs> I personally don't know which of you are right, but you look confident. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I, I found sort of in passing, hanging out with Dennis and John Butterfield in Dennis's office some time back, and I was just telling a story in passing, and I was talking about how I had been downtown in downtown Birmingham, and I pointed, and I wasn't actually trying to point to downtown, I'm just picking some direction to point in, and they both looked in that direction, they said, downtown's the other way. Now, which way is downtown? Oh, it's been north again, we got the same issue we had. <laughs> but that was one of those moments where ever since then, the kind of inside running joke between me and Dennis and John is we'll be sitting wherever in the city, some restaurant, facing some weird way, angled walls, and I'll just out of nowhere say, which way is north? And, I'll, and then I'll start, then I'll take it up, and I'll say, point to Chewy's, point to Jim and Nick's near 119, point to Yosemite Falls, point to, I'll just name just random places all over the country, and they just go pointing, and they're both pointing in the same direction. It's just an amazing thing. In a sense, this text allows us to find true north. You, you think about your life direction. Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be awesome if God put a pen on the map and said, this is where you'll find my grace and power this year. Go here. <laughs> Here's where you are, star on the map. Here's where I want you. And he put a pen on the map for us to find our directions. Matthew 6.33, I would submit to you, is God's pen on the map of 2019, and he's saying, you'll find grace and you'll find power from me here. Get here, head in this direction. This is where thriving is. This is Flourish 2019. This is the spot, right? And so we're going to explore this verse, verse 33, under three headings. And the first is this, a pursuit a pursuit. So you just see those words. Seek first the kingdom of God. This is in your notes. Just stop and take this in. In your notes, Jesus Christ, utterly unique in human history, said, seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, we get so familiar with those words and those phrases that we move past the, the person who's speaking. This is the Son of God. This is the God-man. So the most self-destructive thing you and I can do this year is ignore those words. That would be the most foolish thing to do is to hear Jesus, the risen Son of God, say, go here and us not go there. To ignore his agenda for our lives. He is wisdom incarnate. He shows us the way of wisdom. The thing is, you know, th this verse is so familiar, that's almost what makes it dangerous, right? It's extremely well-known. You can finish that sentence, especially where we live. I was in a conversation with a guy on Thursday. I've gotten better acquainted with him over time, and we've had a number of spiritual conversations, and I was telling him, hey, we're starting a series 
at the Church of Brook Hills this Sunday, and we're walking through statements where Jesus said, I want you to do this first. This is really important. Give yourself to this. And I said, the very first one that we're going to look at are words where Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. And he interrupted me, and he said, it's going to sound like I'm changing the subject. This isn't awkward for me. I'm not changing the subject. But he said, I get my clothes dry cleaned at this place, and he named the place. And he said, they always print on the paper, on the hanger, they always print a scripture verse. And he said, the scripture verse that was printed was Matthew 6, And he said, I went home, and I read those words that you just quoted to me. Seek first the kingdom, right? So many are familiar, especially here, we're so familiar with this language, seek first the kingdom. I think it's important for us to stop and take it in line by line, word by word, that word seek, Just think about that. What does that mean? The Christian life is a life of seeking. So it's the Greek word zeteo, and here's what it means. You look up that Greek word, and it means to search, to look for. It means to feel the lack of, and it means to desire to possess. That's what Jesus is saying. Seek first, desire to possess. Feel the lack of it and move in the direction of this. Look, the question for us this morning isn't, are you seeking a kingdom? Of course you are. You're a human being. We're insatiably seeking a kingdom, right? The question is, whose kingdom are we seeking? Is it his kingdom or is it my kingdom? Is it his kingdom or some other kingdom? And if it's his kingdom, is it his kingdom first, right? So all these words, Jesus is tightening down. He's clarifying. He's not leaving this nebulous or vague or gaseous. He's saying, I'm going to tell you exactly what this is all about. Seek it and seek it first. Human beings, again, we are insatiable seekers. You read the book of Ecclesiastes. What's it the story of? Of humans seeking. Seeking what? joy, seeking satisfaction, seeking meaning, seeking purpose. And he's just grasping, and he says it's futility all the way through. It's futility. I grasp it, and it it went right through my hands. That's the familiar story of the world. Everybody in the world is seeking the kinds of things that Jesus talks about here in this passage. Matter of fact, look at verse 32, the verse right before our passage in verse 33. In verse 32, he says, the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. The Gentiles in first century world is, is a placeholder for those who are outside of God, those who don't know much about him, those who don't have a relationship with Israel's covenant God. The Gentiles seek that stuff. So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not asking you to do something you've never done before. I'm asking you to seek in a place that you've never sought it before. Everybody's seeking, but they're not seeking the kingdom. The Gentiles are seeking these things, but they're not seeking it in the right place. That's why we need the clarity. We need Jesus to put a pin on the map and say, here's where I am. You'll find me here. This is, this is an act of grace. This is, this is a cosmic act of rescue where Jesus is saying, let me save you a lot of heartache. Let me, let me save you the frustration of slamming your head against a brick wall all year because you're seeking your own kingdom rather than a kingdom that's above your own. Jesus is clarifying when he says, Seek first the kingdom. He's saying, you were made to live under a king, not to be one. Just clarify the terms. Since you weren't wired, you weren't designed to be a king, you can't find any fulfillment in that. You've not been given that title. 
That's above your pay grade. You seek that kingdom, good things fall to you. Your well-being is to seek that kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. You think about that for our own lives. When, when I live for my own agenda, I'm shooting myself in the foot. <laughs> Jesus makes that so clear. Not only that, as a Christian, when I live for my own agenda, I am, at least temporarily, contradicting the fundamental nature of discipleship. He's the master, we're the learners. He calls the shots, we follow. He speaks, we follow. He speaks, we listen. So when he says make disciples, we don't blow that off and say I'd rather do this other thing. When he says give generously, we don't say no thanks, I'd rather keep my money. We, when he says share the gospel, we don't say that's too awkward. We, he speaks, we respond, he's the king. He sets the agenda. He gives us our marching orders. We listen to him. Jesus sets the agenda for your life. That's what Christianity is. Any Christianity that doesn't let Jesus set the agenda isn't Christianity. You can't, it can't fall under that term anymore. We've blown the term apart. That's why the second word is as important as the first. Seek, yes. Seek first. That's hugely important. Just think about that. So Jesus didn't say, seek the kingdom of God. He said, seek first the kingdom of God. So we've looked at what seek means. We know what first means, right? It's not second. <laughs> seek the kingdom first means don't seek the kingdom second. There's a world of difference between first place and second place, isn't there? You think about your own, your favorite sports-based movie. So it might be Remember the Titans or it might be who knows what, maybe the hockey one, but nobody really cares about hockey down here, right? Maybe it's, maybe it's Rudy, maybe it's Field of Dreams. In my opinion, the greatest trumps all of those. Hoosiers is the greatest sports film ever, right? But you pick your own, you can have that, we can have differences of opinion there. Pick your own film and just change one thing about it. Everything else is the same, same actors, same background music, same season build-up montage, workout thing that happens as they prepare for the championship game. Everything's the same, you change one thing, they lose. I've just ruined your movie, right? You just ruined your movie because there's a world of a difference, we know it, between first place and second place. And that's true here as well. We, we know what Jesus means when he says seek this kingdom first, he means don't seek it second. This is in your notes. Christians are the ones seeking God's kingdom first. Christians are the ones seeking God's kingdom first. So just think about what happens when someone becomes a follower of Jesus. There's a $3 word in theology. It's regeneration. It means you were dead and now you're alive. The Bible speaks in that way in, in Ephesians chapter two and other places. You were dead to God. You didn't care about God. You were indifferent to God, doing your own thing. And then suddenly you're alive. Suddenly you want him, right? So there's regeneration speaks of this new desire. The, the Old Testament prophet said there's gonna be coming a day where your old hard heart toward God which was indifferent to his purposes will be taken away and this fleshy, soft, responsive heart to God will be given to you, and you'll want him. You'll want his purposes. You'll want to hear when he talks. You'll want to move in his direction. Like, that's the truth about Christians. Christians have a new heart. 
Christians have new desires. It doesn't mean sin is gone, it's been eradicated, there's no more desire, there's no more temptation. No, temptation is very real. Temptation is very powerful. Sin still dwells in us, right? But, but, but while that's true, there is this hunger, isn't there? There's a thirst for God. Psalm 42 makes sense to you now. I, like a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you. Oh God, there's this inner God wrought, planted by him, longing for God. Paul uses that kind of language in my favorite chapter of the Bible, in Philippians chapter three. We studied this last year where he's using this language of reaching for something beyond himself. He, he says, I want to lay hold of something. He says, I'm in the grip of it, but I want to grip it back. I, I want to be, I'm captured by it. I want to capture it, right? So he, he says, I don't, I, ha- I don't have it yet. I'm not fully possessing it yet, but I'm straining in its direction, right? You think about that language, what does it suggest? I, I haven't arrived yet. So we're not talking about sinless perfection. We're not talking about you're above temptation for the rest of your life. No, that's still gonna be real. But Paul is saying, I'm straining for a prize. I'm reaching for something. So the question for us as Christians isn't, have you stopped sinning yet? That's easy. And it's depressing to answer that question from the Bible. The question isn't, have you stopped sinning yet? The question is, are we humbled by our sin? Christians are the ones who pray, God, open my eyes to things that I don't see in my heart, dark places here, my own agenda that I'm in the grip of it. God, save me from myself. God, do a work of renewal in my life, in my heart. That's what Christians pray. If if you're a follower of Jesus, you're gonna be saying that instinctively because God's gonna work it in you. All throughout this year, you're gonna find yourself saying that. Christians are praying for God to open our eyes to our sin and help me to turn from it. And when God answers the prayer and he opens your eyes to your sin, Christians are those who respond to that not with excuses and minimizing and rationalizing and justifying and blame shifting. Christians are the ones who sound like Psalm 51. Christians are the ones who say, cleanse me. Oh God, purge me with, with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. God, don't cast me away from your presence. Have mercy on me, oh God. According to your tender mercies, blot out my transgression. So the biblical word for all of that is repentance. Christians are the repenting ones. The ones who are seeing it and then saying, God, save me. God, I'm wrong and you're right. Again, I'm wrong, you're right. Bring renewal in this area. That's the kinds of things that we will be praying by God's grace this year. Christians feel this in our bones. We've been singing it for centuries, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, I feel it. If I take my hands off the wheel, I instantly start drifting away from you. It's my natural inclination away from you. And then Christians pray that next line of that great old hymn, here's my heart, seal it, seal it for your courts above, keep me. We're at a wedding, my family um, went to a wedding yesterday afternoon for the Horton family, it was just beautiful. We saw a number of Brook Hills folks who were there, a, a, 
tremendous celebration of one of God's favorite gifts to give, the gift of marriage, and the gospel was as radiant as the bride. It was so central and so beautiful of a celebration and time together, and and when, um, when the wedding began, we sang a hymn, and it's the the oldest hymn that's been translated into the English language. And so Christians have been singing for 1,200 years these words, thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure thou art. That's the desire of the believer. You, God, be first, be first. So there's a pursuit. Second, there's a promise. There's a promise. Look at it again. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. There's the promise. Those who seek him first will lack no good thing. Those who seek him first at the end of the day lose nothing. It's all, according to Paul, it's all gain. What we've lost didn't matter. What we gain is Christ and that matters more than everything. He meets, as Paul says in Philippians 4, all of the believer's needs according to his riches in glory. It's a glorious truth that God promises this to every believer. You know, you take this whole passage in, verse 25 to verse 34, and there are four imperative verbs, four commands. And then, but if you list them out, you find out there's really only two commands, and then one of them is repeated a few times. Here are the commands. Verse 25, don't worry. Verse 31, another command, don't worry. Verse 33, seek first the kingdom. Verse 34, don't worry. You see the point. And these two commands are related. They're related in a cause-effect relationship. So you see that reflected in your notes, this next point. The, The seeking of the kingdom is God's remedy to the crushing weight of worry. The seeking of the kingdom is God's remedy to the crushing weight of worry. And and often the Bible speaks this way. We saw this last year in the Mission Together series. If you were here when we studied through Philippians chapter four, the Apostle Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, pray about everything. In other words, the image there is he's saying, push prayer into the space previously occupied by your anxious thoughts. Push, in other words, prayer has a displacement property about it. Where it goes, something else can't be. And so where your anxious thoughts are, Paul says, push prayer there. Speak to God there. You, you think of those elevators where you have a front door and a back door and they both open up. That's almost an image that, that comes to mind when I think about this, right? So at some point, if you open the front door and you open the back door and people keep pouring into the front door, at some point, you're going to add one person in the front and you're going to lose one person in the back, right? It's not, it doesn't have an infinite capacity. You're going to add one extra person and one person's going to have to be pushed out the back, right? There's a relationship kind of like that, I think, in Matthew 6.33, that seek first God's kingdom comes in the front door and you worrying about your kingdom is pushed out of the back. He fills that space. It's his now. His kingdom's pushed into the front. Your kingdom's pushed out along with, note this, along with all the exhausting energy you spent propping up your kingdom, which is anxiety. There's the worry, right? Notice how Jesus makes this a faith issue. Look at verse 30. 
If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry. In other words, Jesus seems to be saying, your eyes are in the wrong place. You're looking at your own kingdom. You're looking at your closet. You're looking at the lack of clothes and you're looking at the pantry and the food. And he's saying, you're not looking at the king. You're not looking at the father who clothes the grass of the fields and who feeds the birds of the air. He's the one who provides. Get your eyes up. Get your eyes up. Look somewhere else, right? So this is the next point in your notes, to seek the kingdom first is to set your eyes on the king. You know, Matthew's gospel is the one that's, of all the gospels, is most explicitly focused on how Jesus is the long-promised king who comes to restore the goodness of creation by bringing God's kingdom here. Matthew's gospel is so taken up with that motif, that thread. You think about the Christian life. So, The Christian life is all about a vibrant relationship with the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's that's what it is. It's a deeply personal thing. You know, we can use terms like grace, like the Bible uses terms like grace, but sometimes we can forget grace is a metaphor. So often in the Bible, grace is personified, and so often in in our language as Christians, we talk about how, yeah, grace really... Uh, Grace really met me in 2018. And that's great. The Bible uses that language that same way. As long as when you say, Grace met me in 2018, you're thinking, The God who is gracious met me in 2018. In other words, grace isn't a substance, grace isn't some goo in heaven that falls on people. You can measure it in pounds. You get five pounds of grace or 10 pounds of grace. There's no such thing as grace. There's God and there's your soul. There's a gracious God who comes into contact with your soul and we call that grace met me, but really what it is, technically speaking, is it's God who's gracious coming into contact with your soul. Don't lose sight of that. When you say grace met me, what you're really saying is Jesus met me. The Father comforted me. The Spirit showed me something. The Spirit empowered me. We're talking about the persons of the Trinity, the working of the sovereign triune God. That's what Christianity is. Christianity happens at the intersection of the living God and your life. Christianity is what happens at the intersection of my weakness and God's strength my sin and Christ's cross, my brokenness and his healing power. That's where Christianity happens. In other words, if Christianity isn't personal, it's not Christianity. Christianity's nothing if it's not a personal transformative encounter with God, with God himself, which means what? It means when scripture calls you as a follower of Jesus Christ, when scripture calls you as a disciple of Christ to seek the kingdom, don't miss the fact that scripture is saying, listen to the king. 
Listen to the king's words. Believe the king's promises. Live for the king's cause. Spread the king's fame. Display the king's character. Be loyal to the king's name. It's about him. It's about getting him in his proper place. First place. Him where he belongs. And he promises you put him in his first place All these things will be added to you. You don't have to mind your own. You don't have to get your own and scramble for it. All these things will be provided for you. This is in your notes. You don't have to manage your world. What good news that is. Not easy to believe it, but it's the truth. You don't have to manage your world. That's God's job. What's Jesus saying to you in this passage? Follower of Jesus, here's what he's saying. Don't worry about your life. You want to concern yourself about something, concern yourself about his kingdom. Yeah, but what about my life? I've got your life. (laughs) So Jesus is saying, Father's got your life. Have you seen the coat that he gave to creation? He's He's wrapped the fields of this world in coats more splendid than the richest king in Israel's entire history. And he's put that on a hillside humans maybe have never even seen yet. God has clothed the fields. Don't worry about your life. He said the Father's taking care of that. Look at verse 26. Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can you add one moment to your lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry. There's Jesus kind of so Brook Hills. In other words, Jesus is saying, all of this lands somewhere with, with profound relevance for your life. If you seek first the kingdom, you don't have to worry. You can trust his provision for your life. As C.S. Lewis famously said, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. I think that's him riffing on Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom, all these things will be added. He says, aim at heaven and you'll get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you'll get neither. And that, I think that's our greatest struggle, isn't it? We don't want to be children. Children are, um, are dependent. Children are not the beneficiary, right? Not, not the benefactor, they're the beneficiary, right? They're not contributing. Children aren't, notably, children aren't in control. You remember when you were a child? You remember the things that you wanted, the things that you dreamed about when, you, when I'm an adult? I remember thinking when I was a kid, when I'm an adult, I remember my sister would come home from LSU and, and I thought, she's an adult. And I thought, when I'm an adult, what am I going to do with my time? And I, just my next thoughts were, I'm going to stay up so late. I'm going to eat Count Chocula every night at 11.30. And I'm going to watch all the movies that my parents think are the dumbest, most waste of time movies. And I'm just going to watch them one after another, just popping Chocula in my mouth. It's just going to be awesome. The freedom, the independence, right? That's adulthood. <laughs> Children are dependent. Children are, are told and are provided for. 
we don't like that, right? We, we want independence. As, as Christians, we wrestle with that, don't we? We wrestle for our own agenda. We wrestle to be independent. If my life is going to be a, a trust fall game, something like a trust fall game in 2019, I want to be the one doing the catching. I don't want to be the one doing the falling, right? I want one role, and I definitely don't want the other role. Christian friend, here's the reality. Your life is going to be trust fall in 2019, and there's nothing you can do to keep it from being a trust fall in 2019. And Jesus is saying here, the Father will catch you. The Father will catch you in January, and he'll catch you again in February, and he'll catch you again in March, and he'll faithfully catch you over and over. Every time you're falling, you're falling into his trustworthy, faithful arms. This really, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this, this points to that central message of the Bible, which is called the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. The, the message of the Bible, if you've never read it before, you pick up there, there's this storyline running all the way from cover to cover, and it begins where God makes us in his image, and he makes us to live in fellowship with him enjoying his presence, living under his blessing, living under his rule and his provision. And what did humanity say? No thanks. And we struck out on our own. And what we didn't maybe realize is that when we left the Father, we didn't realize he's our life. So there's nothing out there but death. There can only be death when we distance ourselves from the life that is God. And so you put daylight between you and God and you're moving toward death and that's what we tasted every day in our lives in this world without Jesus. And that is the situation into which Jesus came when he came to save us. We were just looking at that at Christmas. The incarnation, God breaks into planet earth. He takes on human flesh. He lives a perfect life, the one that you and I haven't lived. He dies on the cross in my place as my substitute. He inhales God's justice against human sin on the cross and then he rises again from the dead in triumph over sin and death. That's the good news. That's the message that centers on the God-man, Jesus, the Son of God. And here's how we respond to it. We hear that good news and we trust him. We say, I believe that. I believe what you did in your perfect life and what you did in your atoning death and what you did in your resurrection is all that I need. Everything that I need in this world is found in this Savior. That's trust. That's faith. That's where the Christian life begins. And what happens when you put your faith in Jesus? Everything that he inherits is yours. The righteousness of Christ is yours. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to jump through hoops. You believed and it's yours. Peace that surpasses understanding, it's yours. Joy unspeakable and full of glory, it's yours. Psalm 16, pleasures evermore at God's right hand, it's yours. That's your future. Your life is trending beautifully now and forever. It's yours in Christ. God himself is yours. Because Jesus gives us his spirit who walks with us every day in this world. That's your security. Paul takes you there in Romans chapter 8. He says, just think with me. He says to the Roman Christians, if God didn't spare his own son, 
but delivered him up to die in your place, delivered him up for us all, how, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Everything is yours in Christ. All these things will be added in Christ. All these things. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, his right way of making you right before him, his way of making us righteous in his sight. All these things are provided when we seek him first. God, God will make all things work together for good. That's Romans 8 again, right? Even the hard things, Paul says in that same chapter, even the hard things and the suffering in this world, he says, will be pressed into the service of your final joy and your satisfaction in him. Martin Luther said centuries ago, I have held many things in my hands and I have lost them all. We are butterfingers, aren't we? I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. Again, friend, if you belong to Jesus, your life is trending wonderfully, now and forever. So we have a pursuit, we have a promise, and third, finally, we have a provider. We have a provider. We live out of our view of God. I'm convinced that so much of the anemic Christianity in our culture here in the West is owing to the fact that so much of our Christianity is self-help wrapped in Bible language. It's all about me. And Jesus or God is my service provider. He's not my king, he's a vitamin. He's a supplement to my life. He's not central. He's not glorious and mighty and majestic and awesome. So what we need is not a mirror. We got plenty of those. We need a window into heaven. We need to see God as he is in all of his glory. One of the, one of the best things happened to me at the end of the year is I closed the year by reading a book by Joe Thorne called Experiencing the Trinity. The whole book's about God. Section one, the glory of God the Father. Section two, the glory of God the Son. Section three, the glory of God the Spirit. Page after page, I'm not reading about myself. I'm reading about him, and I'm coming away with comfort. I'm coming away. Worries are, are dropping like flies because I'm seeing, look at him. Look how awesome. Look how capable. Look how faithful. Look at his, what he's done in history. Look at his saving grace. I, I love that we sing solid truth here at this church. We sang it this morning. We didn't sing about ourselves. We didn't prop up ourselves. We didn't sing flattering truths about me. We sang, Christ is enough. He is. We sang, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. You can't pound your chest and sing that. We were talking about how great our sin was. And he's the hero of the story. We sang, sent of heaven, God's own son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones, here's our part, here's where we enter the story, who nailed him to the tree. That's what we did. Look at what he did, look at what we did. It's a song about someone else's glory, a song about someone else's power to save. I need that. That is 
therapy for my soul. It's therapy for your soul as well. Why? Because, because I instinctively take the reins of my life back. I, without even thinking, I can unconsciously find myself building my little tumble-down, rickety throne. And it's almost as though God steps in and passage after passage, he says, you're doing it again. Doing what? You're, you're building your, your throne. We don't even realize it. We start living like God is locked outside. And it's, it's all on me now, right? I'm gonna sharpen my elbows and get by in this world, right? There's nobody else looking out for me. I gotta look out for myself. Not only is that devastating for my own life, it's energy depleting for my own life, but, but look, here's what it says to the world. God is not a good father. You can't trust him to care for you and to meet your needs. So this is what we have in our notes here. Good reminder, what frantic warriors need most? God, the good father, the savior king, the spirit who helps. That's what we need the most. I love Galatians 2.20, this beautiful statement. I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Those words blew the minds of first century believers. Son of God loved me, gave himself for me. Greatest person in the universe loves me, gave himself for me. That, they never got over that. And you know what it led them to do? To conclude, he can handle my world. He can handle it. I can fall and he'll catch me. I can be bold in my witness. New Testament truth keeps God central. Look, he, he doesn't meet all of our needs as service provider. He meets all of our needs as king in that proper place. Look, think about this year. So 2019 is stretched out in front of us. Very first Sunday of the year. 2019 can be a year of spiritual flourishing for you. 2019 can be a year of eternal investments. It can be a year of setting your sights on a kingdom above your own little rickety kingdom, a kingdom that can't be shaken. 2019 can be a year where we're forgetting more and more about my own little provincial life and spending ourselves instead in the cause of a kingdom that's breaking in on this world in power, in the cause of a kingdom that, where all the mathematics are off in this kingdom. Things don't add up to our way of thinking in this world. In this kingdom, the more you spend on this kingdom, the more you get. The more you die in this kingdom, the more you live. The more you meet needs, the more you find your needs have been met. That's the way things go in this Jesus kingdom. Even in suffering. In John 4, Jesus hasn't eaten for a while, and his disciples, as friends of his, they notice. They're like, hey, look, we've, we've had a number of meals, and you haven't eaten in a long time. It's time. Rabbi, they say, Eat something. And what does Jesus say back to them? He says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. Friends, there is a peace only God's children know through Christ. John Newton is the author of the great hymn, Amazing Grace. He's probably my favorite figure in church history. 
And so I'm reading him all the time and uh, was reading him earlier this week, reading some of his letters and correspondences because he wrote to tons of people and communicated encouragement from scripture to their hearts. One letter that I read for the first time this week is a letter that he wrote to a friend of his who was a skeptic. And the skeptic apparently said to, to Newton, he said, you're too smart for Christianity. You're too sensible. And then he said, and, and, and also, I'm enjoying life more than you do. What do you say about that? And, and this letter is what he says in response to that skeptical friend of his. And Newton says, you think you're the only one who enjoys life? And then he goes on and he just tells him about, he talks about food, he talks about friendship, he, he talks about his marriage in a beautiful way, he talks about his marriage, he talks about his family. And then Newton says, because of the common grace of God, he, rain falls on, on those who believe and those who don't believe. And he said, so in that sense, I'm not surprised that both of us can talk about our enjoyments of this life. And he said, but let's not talk about joy, let's talk about pain. And he plants his pivot foot and he says, let's talk about pain. Here's what he writes. Pain, sickness, losses, disappointments, injuries, and offenses will at one time or other be our lot. And can you bear these trials better than I? Let me appeal to you. How often do you toss and disquiet yourself like a wild bull in a net when things cross your expectations? As your thoughts are more engrossed by what you see, you are more keenly sensible of what you feel. You cannot view these trials as appointed by a wise and heavenly father in subservience to your good. You cannot taste the sweetness of his promises, nor feel the secret supports of his strength in an hour of affliction. You cannot so cast your burden and care upon him as to find a sensible relief to your spirit, nor can you see his hand engaged and employed in affecting your deliverance. Of these things you know no more than the art of flying." But I attest they are realities, and I have found them to be so. When my worldly concerns have been most thorny and discouraging, I have once and again felt the most of that peace which the world can neither give nor take away. What is Newton saying to his skeptical friend? He's saying, I have food you don't know about. He writes another letter to a different friend and the end of that letter just soars. He says this, he's writing to a Christian. Is it not happiness to have an infallible guide, an invincible guard, an almighty friend, to be able to say of the maker of heaven and earth, he's my beloved, my shepherd, my savior, and to say to him, and now he quotes a hymn, let waves and thunders mix and roar, be thou my God, I ask no more. While thou art sovereign, I'm secure. I shall be rich till thou art poor. Christian, are you more driven by worldly anxiety or heavenly promise? Do these promises situate you? Do they hold your feet steady in the storm? There is a kingdom above the kingdoms of this world. And when we push his kingdom into the space where our kingdom was, our kingdom goes along with it, all that frenetic energy we spent propping it up. The best thing that can happen to you in 2019 is to lose your throne. That's a good outcome. You might find yourself 
at the end of yourself, and it's only January the 6th. There's no better way to start the year than at the end of yourself. So glad it's 2019. Some of us need to start over, right? Some of us need to say to God, maybe even today, God, here, here's, my, uh, here's my ramshackle throne that I started assembling last year. Burn this thing to the ground. Build my life on something solid. Do a new work, do a renewing work in my heart, in my soul. Fill my eyes with the prospect of living for a kingdom that's bigger, better, more glorious than my tumble-down kingdom, a kingdom that can't be shaken. God, don't let me wander aimlessly this year. That's why I'm praying for my own life, my family, and praying that for us as a church. Don't let us aim, wander aimlessly this year. You know, God is not playing hard to get with you. He's obvious and available. He's here for the finding. He's here for the taking, right? He's right where he should be in the first place. Is that where we sought him in 2018? Jesus puts a pin, Matthew 6, 33, and he says, this is where you'll find me. This is where you'll find my grace and my power this year. And I pray as a church all year long, individually and corporately, that we will find Jesus right there in that place of absolute preeminence.